Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary, The Redeem Team. I remember everybody's in the locker room already after the loss, and I'm just on the court and we looking at the celebration. And it was just like, we could never have this feeling ever again. Today, we're talking to director and executive producer, John Weinbach. When the U.S. added NBA players to their men's Olympic basketball team in 1992, it seemed they'd never lose again. But in the years after that first dream team, the international competition got better and the American teams began to coast. After a humiliating bronze medal performance in 2004, organizers shook up the U.S. system. A legendary coach assembled the nation's greatest players with a renewed sense of purpose and a shot at redemption. But can these superstars learn to play together and bring the gold medal home? We have to learn their game and quit making excuses and quit trying to impose our game on theirs. If we learn their game, we will beat them. And I'm joined by executive producer and director, John Weinbach. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you for having me. So you focused on sports stories throughout your career. You worked on 30 for 30 and The Last Dance. Great documentary. What is it about that human drama of athletic competition that sucks you right in? You know, I think ultimately it's kind of why we gravitate. It's the same reason why we gravitate to legal stories procedurals, there's a winner and there's a loser. Um, I think there's something about that that, you know, is just compelling. Um, I also think sports, because it has emotion and because it sometimes takes place in the context of politics and geography and place and memory and all of these things, um, and we do it as kids, I don't know, and you do it with, it's also often associated, you know, with family you know, brothers, sisters, parents. Um, I think all that, there's a lot of emotion in sports and there's a winner and a loser. And I think it's just something that is a a way into the human condition. Um, That's a very sort of highfalutin way of saying it. I think it's also just, it's, it's a great mix of personalities and 
you know, strategy. And, and I think, yeah, ultimately, um, for me at least, I, I just was a massive sports fan. And so it became the way in which I interacted with the world. And so when I wanted to, you know, decide to do something with my life, when I, I always thought I wanted to do something in sports or sports media. Now, I'm not a massive sports fan, but sports documentaries are my favorite kinds of documentaries. Um, isn't it sort of about what happens off the field, though, as well? Sort of the, the personalities talking to you, the, the the stakes are just so incredibly high for these players. But then also how they feel about each other, sort of thinking about what happened, looking at footage of what happened. And, you know, really the ability of players to be in the moment of something that happened many years ago is incredibly compelling, Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think all of it. I mean, there's obviously the on court, on field, on ice, whatever sport you're talking about action. Right. And that can take you that can sometimes be enough, you know, but I think, uh, you know, in my work and I think, you know, certainly what I aspire to do and, and the best, you know, sports storytelling is it has to appeal um, to people who are not sports fans, it has to you know elicit emotion, and yeah, oftentimes that is the stories between the lines, what happens off the court, off the field, how people get there. It's just like anything; it's, it has to have an arc. You know, there has to be some change, or hopefully some uh, beginning, middle, and end that makes for a good story. So in the Redeem team, there are some contemporary interviews with the players, but almost all of the behind-the-scenes stuff in the documentary was shot by a crew going back more than 15 years. Where did all this footage come from, and how was it originally used or originally supposed to be used? Yeah, so there's really two big sources of archival footage. One is the game and the competition footage from the Olympics. That came from the IOC, the International Olympic Committee's archives. Um, and then the big tranche of you know super valuable, incredible footage was um, shot by crews from NBA Entertainment, um, which is you know the entertainment arm of of the NBA, and they were shooting it uh, for USA Basketball. You know, in, the, in our film, The Redeem Team, that's where the the footage that you see from the Vegas training camps, um, that's where it came from. And it was originally assembled as part of a series that aired, I believe, in right before the Beijing Olympics. It was called Road to Redemption. It none of, it, it, did, it included none of the the Beijing footage because they hadn't gone to the tournament yet, and it aired in that summer. And yeah, it had been compiled over the summers of two thousand six, two thousand seven, and then two thousand eight. Um, because there was the sense that this team was significant and that they had to. Uh, I don't know when they were actually, you know, dubbed the Redeem team. It certainly was something that was, you know, in the ether uh, in that summer before Beijing. Um, but this was a really pivotal moment for American basketball. You know, this was something that we, this was a sport we dominated literally since the the founding of the sport and since it, it had begun being played um, international competition at the Olympics. When we lost, when the United States lost in 2004 at the Athens Olympics, it would, it shook the foundations, you know, of, hey, what's going on? You know, this is this sport that we've dominated that sort of core to our identity as Americans. And it's sort of like, you know, Brazilians with soccer. That's how basketball is for Americans. Like, we have to dominate. And if we don't, something's wrong, you know. And the reality is the 04 Olympics, the signs had already been on the wall, you know, that that – Somehow it wasn't as important, it wasn't as appealing for a variety of reasons for our top pros to represent their country in international competition. But the 04 performance, when it isn't just that the U.S. finished third, we lost three times, it was the way they played, 
there probably was a racial component to it, the sense that these young African-American players are, are spoiled or somehow unappreciative of the opportunity. You know, Dwayne Wade and Carmelo Anthony and LeBron James and Carlos Boozer, who were on that 04 team and also on the 08 team, they, they, they talk about that. And Dwayne, who's, you know, one of the executive producers on the project along with LeBron, he talks about that a lot, you know, that, that that was there was this absolute perception that this young group of guys somehow are unbefitting of, you know, the right or the privilege to wear the American jersey. And they hadn't they hadn't taken it with the proper reverence or whatever. And, and part of that also was any team of professionals at the Olympics was always going to be compared to the dream team from 1992. Mm. Mm. And so and that that was a very tough standard to live up to. All of that, um, you know, sort of combined was like, hey, this this journey to 08 was really significant. And so the NBA made this, you know, for, for us, you know, really in- incredible decision to document um, the behind the scenes uh, training leading up to 08. So that prologue you were talking about is important. You know, the U.S. men's Olympic team had always had amateur players until the 1992 games. So why was the NBA on board with sending their best players to the Olympics in 1992? Well, what had happened, and and actually uh, I had a previous film I had produced and written called The Other Dream Team, which is actually the story about the Lithuanian Olympic basketball team, also at the 1992 Olympics when we sent the dream team. The core of that team um, were actually uh, guys who had started and played well for the Soviet team in 1988. And... You know, over a period of time in the 80s, the the game of basketball had become more, you know, had grown in popularity and there were pros and and in European leagues. And in particular, you know, the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia had really great teams, but their teams were not considered pros because of the arcane rules of, of sports at the time. And they were considered amateurs, even though by all definitions, they were pros. And it sort of came to a head in 88 when we sent a team of college all-stars and they were playing against a Soviet team. The guys were mostly in their early 20s and had were competing as professionals in the Soviet Union. And there was this sense that, well, sort of two things. One was, is that really fair, <laughs> you know, that we're sending our college players against, you know, grown men? And the other one was, we lost. Mm. You know, in 88, this was a quite good American team. Uh, they had David Robinson, they had Danny Manning. Dan Marley, Charles Smith. I mean, they had a, a very solid team coached by John Thompson, who was you know, the championship head coach with Georgetown. And we got our, our asses kicked by the Soviets. <laughs> and it was you know a combination of the global basketball world saying, hey, it would be nice maybe to have the professionals and, to, and, and the IOC recognizing an opportunity and the NBA recognizing an opportunity to say, hey, we can sort of reassert American dominance and, oh, by the way, have a really great marketing opportunity for the NBA at the 92 Olympics. And that combined, again, a lot happened between 1988 and 1992 in the world, the fall of the Iron Curtain, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia. So you had a whole new world at those 92 Olympics. And so that became this great opportunity to have this showcase for, you know, the dream team, which was, you know, Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and all these guys. Incredible. An incredible roster. It was sort of this overlapping of generations of basketball players, too. You have Patrick Ewing, Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone. 
And the weirdest fact about the Dream Team to me is that they had this like token college player and they picked Christian Leitner over Shaquille O'Neal to be the token college player on the team. But this team, though, it set the expectation that America would be unbeatable like forever, right? Yeah, I mean, that's right. And and it set this, the Dream Team set this unrealistic standard for how a team of pros can play at the Olympics or an international competition for a couple of reasons. One is that was a uniquely charismatic and iconic group of players. Two is the level of play in international basketball after 1992 improved. One of the, I don't know about ironic or sort of beneficial products of the dream team's success was that it motivated kids around the world to play basketball. And the dream team's success actually grew the game around the world. It's a tough standard to live up to if you're an American. You're constantly being compared to this unicorn of a team. And so you got no credit for winning, right? It was just, oh, well, you didn't win as much as the dream team did. Mm. And there was no consideration that, oh, by the way, the rest of the world's getting pretty good too. And so you have this period, you know, for about – Eight years after the Dream Team where we still win, but there were warning signs that A, the world had gotten better and B, the appeal of playing for Team USA was was waning. And so after the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, the first sign is in the 02 World Championships, which were actually held in the United States. And no disrespect to the guys who were on the USA team, but it was kind of a third team. I mean, most of the guys who they wanted to play didn't even play. We got waxed. We finished, I think, seventh in that tournament. Got beat by Argentina, got beaten by Yugoslavia, I think got beaten by Spain. And then so then they reconstitute the team in 2004. But because of sort of a variety of factors, including you know, wars in Iraq, wars in Afghanistan, the sense that, hey, it might be a little dangerous to play as an American. And also, again, this issue of what do I, Tracy McGrady or me, Ray Allen or any number of stars who've already proven themselves, what do I have to gain by playing for Team USA? I'm just going to be compared to the, the dream team. And yep. who wants any of that? So nine guys begged out. And they still had a quite formidable team in 04, but it really was the the culmination of all of these factors. And that's why we sent a team to, to Athens. They were not prepared to win. And so that wasn't a winning formula, obviously. They had gotten together also just weeks before the games. Um, and not only were the athletes from other countries getting better, but they were playing a different kind of basketball than the NBA players. So what is the best way to describe that fundamental difference in play? Well, it's changed now. I mean, now actually the quote global game is much closer in rules and format to the NBA game. But they're different geometry, literally. The court is shaped differently. There's a wider lane in the it used to be in the international game, so it in theory was there to prevent just big guys from dominating. So it was there was more wider lane, the shorter three point line, the actual ball is different. It's just, it's, 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 uh, it's just constituted differently as 12 panels. I think instead of eight, it's a different feel. And the, the game is officiated a different way. There are certain, you know, again, quirks in the rules, you know, for a basketball junkie, they'll understand. But, you know, in, in the American game, in the game that we play in high school, college and the pros, uh, we have a rule called goaltending. If the ball is on the rim, you can't touch it. Well, in the international game, you can. <laughs> and so that's just a whole different way of playing. Like you can knock the ball off the basket. Uh, the game is officiated differently. 
um, in just, again, some idiosyncratic ways. It's on the one hand more physical and less. The guards the, you know, can play more physical defense, but the big men – the officials call call fouls much more quickly. And so, you know, this was the way the world played. We viewed it as, quote, our game. Well, in fact, it was the world's game, and the world played by a different set of rules. And we never sort of really wanted to acknowledge that when we were beating everyone. So every team needs a great coach to rally around, and they found Duke's legendary Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski. I thought it was really funny that Colangelo said uh, he was the best choice because all the players respected him. There's only one coach who could get the job done, who has the respect of all the players. He stands alone. He's the only one. It was Coach K. At Duke. And then quick cut to LeBron James talking about his and other players' hatred of Duke and that team's legacy. Growing up in the inner city, you hate Duke. You just hate Duke. You hate Christian Lader. You hate J.J. Redick. You hate Coach K. You hate the damn Blue Devil. There was no, like, excitement when Coach K was appointed that position with Team USA. So what changed? Uh, it's, it, it's, uh, thank you for that. It's, it's one of my favorite sections of the film. I mean, Chris Paul, by the way, played at Wake Forest, which was a conference rival of Duke. He hated Duke maybe even more than LeBron. And he actually had Listen, had s- everybody who doesn't have a kid who went to Duke pretty much hates, hates Duke. Duke. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and you know, it seems, I think there's a number of things that went into the choice of Coach K. I mean, I think it was a challenge to pick the right coach because, the obvious thing was say, hey, take the NBA champion coach, Greg Popovich, or take you know Pat Riley or something like this. The challenge is you, know, you don't know the dynamics of that, and you don't want to have a coach whose team might have static with a player that he's going to coach you know, on the national team. So they sort of needed a Switzerland kind of thing. They needed something new, someone neutral. And Coach K, you know, his credentials were you know, unassailable as a winner, but never with pros. And aside from Carlos Boozer, there were no guys on the national team from 08 that he had coached. He had recruited Kobe Bryant at Duke, um, but he to come to Duke. But Duke, you know, Kobe went straight to the pros. I think Coach K had the gravitas in terms of hey, he's a known quantity. He's won. Nobody could question that. And I think what won him over, or what how he won the guys over to the extent that they needed to be won over is he's really authentic. You know, he is who he is. There's no artifice. There's no bullshit. And, you know, it could easily, it seems so obvious now, Coach K, yeah, he's like the John Wooden of his era. Of course he'd be the obvious coach, but he wasn't. The truth is he wasn't for the reasons you said, that there were some preconceived notions about, you know, Duke and him, and um, he had not coached pros. And these were, you know, really big stars with really big egos. So I think it's really a, a credit to him and just his unique ability to communicate. Again, lack of artifice, no bullshit. And it could have easily have come off hokey, some of his, you know, efforts to get them to buy into the team, to bring, bringing in the military uh, veterans or, or playing the national anthem uh, by Marvin Gaye. It could easily have backfired, but I think, and you see in the film, you know, he can be profane. He can be self-deprecating. He can talk to them, not like they're college kids, but like they're men. 
And I think mm. that that helped. So that is one of the most emotional scenes in the documentary when Coach K brings in those speakers from the Army, including that soldier who lost his sight in combat. Explosion went off. A piece of shrapnel came and hit him in the eyes. It looks like uh, his eyes are, are normal. He does not have any eyes. They were taken out by that shrapnel that went through his head. And he's still serving. That's a hero. It definitely hit me in my emotions. It showed us who and what we were playing for. What did that particular kind of motivation accomplish, like bringing in the soldiers in particular? I was really curious about that. Well, two things on that. I mean, one, Coach K had graduated from West Point. You know, he had a military background. So he wasn't bringing this guy in just because. You know, he had a personal connection. That sergeant who introduces that soldier had played for Coach K at a Army. Also, I do think this was a, a little bit about the context of the time. You know, that that scene, I think, was from 2006. You know, that was five years we had already been in Afghanistan. I think f- three or four years we had been in Iraq. It was a sort of constant drumbeat of news out of Iraq and Afghanistan about, you know, soldiers being killed or why were we there and this is this quagmire. And I think that was a little bit of a move by Coach K to say, hey, there, these are people who are fighting for us, you know, people who are fighting for the same three letters that you're going to have on your jersey. And that was, I think, his thought was, hey, if we're going to be the USA team, we have to kind of be the USA team. And you have to know what that means. You're not just playing for, you know, yourselves. You're not just playing for the basketball program. You're playing for a country. And so that's a very powerful way of, of showing that. I want to ask you about the contemporary interviews because you've got LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, Coach K, and more. Was there any arm twisting to get these guys to talk or had they just all seen the last dance and they were like, yes, I am in, I am in, I am in? I would say less about the last dance and more about their genuine affection for talking about this story. I mean, we did not have to twist any arms to get anybody to agree to do it. It was really just the challenge of finding a time, especially since, you know, we started this project in basically December of 2019 and really started shooting interviews in January of 2020. And so then, you know, it was March and there was COVID. So we had shot Coach K, we had shot Doug Collins and Dwayne Wade's interview was actually literally that Friday that the world ended. I can't remember if it was March 14th or March 15th uh, when, when, during the pandemic. But then we had to sort of, you know, figure out just times. I, I did a, a number of interviews like this uh, on Zoom where I was on FaceTime and, and we had a computer set up and we had a local crew. We shot <laughs> Carlos Boozer that way in, in a friend's backyard in, in Miami uh, in the middle of the pandemic. Um, but no, there there was not. And I... I in terms of it was not challenging to get the guys to talk about this. Even so, I was really struck and it was just so rewarding to see their openness, their candor, their humor, their emotion. I mean, I think it meant something to them. And I think it's one of these things where time, we had the benefit of time. I don't know that necessarily we would have gotten these same responses in the interviews if we did it in, I don't know, 2014, 2016, 2018. So... I, I think with the passage of time, I think the significance and the impact it had on them as a group and individually manifested itself. And the one X factor I'll also say is 
I do think, you know, in some ways the, the pandemic sort of helped in a certain kind of way give these guys some perspective on it. Mm. It's just my gut feeling. I don't know that it's totally true, but, you know, I certainly felt it as an interviewer. Yeah, yeah. So when this Redeem team is tested for the first time in Japan, they come up short. Something's still missing from the team, so enter Kobe Bryant. And after all these players had bonded with each other, it seemed risky to bring in a potentially divisive figure like Kobe, someone who, as we hear, isn't exactly known for making friends. He's taking a hit. And so Kobe is fighting to regain his place. He's fighting to restore his name as well. He had to prove that he was a team player. He had to prove that he was a good guy. He had to prove himself to everybody in the world. That was a huge risk, right? Yeah, I mean, it certainly was a risk in terms of chemistry. Clearly, Kobe was the best player in the league at that point. Mm. I mean, it was no risk in terms of, you know, could he play? (laughs) Um, It was a risk in terms of chemistry, but also they needed something to change it up. I mean, I remember at the time watching those world championships in 06, and it was like already by that point, remember, they had hired Coach K. They had implemented this new national team program. They had brought in these guys, and the sense was, okay, we're getting our you know shit together again. And they lost again. And it was really more than frustrating. It was really soul-searching. It was like, what is going on? We've brought in the right coach. We've brought these players. Like, they just you know, we, we have lost a step. And so they needed, Coach K and Colangelo realized they needed Kobe. You know, they really needed him to, to in order to win. Um, so I think it was a cal- very much a calculated risk. And yeah, I mean, look, Kobe was very singular in, in so many ways, in talent, in, in point of view, in mentality. And he was not well-liked around the NBA for a variety of reasons. And even less than being well-liked, he wasn't well-known. You know, he was Kobe. You know, he was the sort of, you know, I think uh, Chris Bosh says it well. He goes, I knew Kobe, but I didn't know him. You know, he, he was like a brand and a figure more than a person and for these guys who, who, who had not played with him. So, yeah, it was a risk. And I think that, that's sort of one of the most fascinating parts of this story of this team's arc is, you know, the roller coaster that they were on losing and then losing again and then hey can we all get along will this even will this experiment work i mean it is super fascinating to see the evolution of the kobe bryant lebron james relationship behind the scenes in your film it is fascinating i think it's just a very very rare look but i I have a question for you because we all know that kobe bryant died in 2020 but he gave a lot of interviews about his olympic experience and you made the choice to integrate some of those interviews um into the film alongside contemporary interviews how did you think about that because you know we know that they're interviews from the past but they feel very contextual here and that's a that's a hard line to walk right and it's also very moving to see him sort of talking alongside his teammates in this way yeah, I mean, it, it's still this overwhelming tragedy and sort of hard to wrap your head around on so many levels. Uh, I mean, just for me personally, I grew up in L.A. I'm a Laker fanatic. I'm two years older than Kobe. Um, I have two boys. Um, I grew up my entire life, my certainly my entire adult life, watching Kobe, being like a presence in, in, in my own you know life and sports fan life. From the as far as the interviews go, there there were some interviews done uh, in the past, particularly in that 2008 period by NBA Entertainment. The asset we had 
that you know ended up obviously becoming invaluable was an interview that was done by the IOC in 2015, which was shot really well. And it wasn't a particularly long interview, um, but Kobe being Kobe, it was a great interview. When we lost in 2004, um, it was a heavy blow for us. You know, this is a sport that we've dominated for years. And I think you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of beauty in the fact that we lost because it means that the game is growing so much and there's so many countries out there that are playing and playing at a high level. But at the same time, it was like, okay, right, that's beautiful. Now we want it back. <laughs> we want it back. Um, I think the whole interview was maybe 15 minutes, and it was very focused on on those Olympics and and the game against Spain, and we were able to use it and in that way make him present. And mm-hmm. so it, it wasn't really a difficult choice because it was an archival interview that was germane that that was that looked good, and it was a way to make his voice present. Now, I do want to talk about that one Olympic game against Spain because all of the players talk about this moment and remember it the same way. This is my other favorite moment in your documentary. Kobe leveling his Lakers teammate, Pau Gasol, after visiting him the night before in his Olympic Village apartment and sort of bonding with him. And you said, I'm running through Pau's fucking chest. First play of the game, I'm running through Pau Gasol. We was like, What? Man, you tripping. Like, that's your teammate. You tripping. You ain't about to do that. He said, first play of the game. I know what they're going to run. And he knew Powell's going to be the last screen. And he said, I'm running through that motherfucker. I swear, the first play of the game. We was like, holy shit. Can you just talk about what big of a moment that was and what it was like to watch the players remembering that moment? Well, when you do, you know, having done a number of, you know, documentaries, particularly in sports, you have you have this, the asset of the footage, right? And so you, you want to be able to, it can't just be a replay of the highlights. We see those. You want to know sort of the stories behind the, the action. And so in this, you know, as you do this film, just like a lot of others, you, you want to try to isolate, okay, what are some of the moments that maybe we can tease out some really good anecdotes? And that was one I actually remembered quite specifically watching it at the time. And it was in the round robin phase. And part of the reason I remember watching it is because, again, the context of this is sort of funny. I'm a Laker fanatic. The Lakers had gotten killed that spring by the Celtics in the finals with Kobe and Pau. Pau had played poorly. And there was this sense of, you know, oh, maybe Pau's soft and maybe he can't really hack it. And that moment with Kobe plowing through Pau, I think, this is my personal thing, it was definitely assigned to his teammates. It was just as powerfully assigned to Pau to say, if you want to be a champion, know that I am literally going to run through you. And that's Mm. how I want, how I, Laker Kobe, want you, Laker pal, to play. I want you to be this tough. And so it kind of achieved two points it, it, for Kobe. It showed his teammates on Team USA, look, I'm willing to do this against my teammate. And it showed pal, look what I'm willing to do to you on this court. And, and, and it's no, and it's, you know, just there, there's the, the, the last part of it is Lakers won the championship the next year. Yeah. 
it, it was so funny because you kind of get the sense that the other players thought he was being metaphorical when he said, I'm going to run right through him. And then he runs right through him. It's, it's a really incredible moment. So when they arrive in Beijing, the team is in the, in the Olympic Village interacting with other international athletes. And they went to cheer the U.S. and all of these other events, something that didn't happen in 2004. Can you just talk about that off-court experience and what that uh, added to their Olympic experience? I think it was very significant for all of them. Again, each having their own reasons, but I think broadly speaking, it really was to break this perception that particularly the NBA players were sort of better than. You know, they're, they're, the dream team was one thing. That was sort of this, again, this unicorn of a team. But then there was this perception that, you know, the American basketball players are staying in these luxury hotels, that they're sort of, they feel like they're they're better than. And I think Dwayne Wade said it really well. It was like, you know, to to show that, we had to change this perception of how we interact with each other and how we interact with the Olympics and that they were part of it, you know. And so that was very important to them. And I also think, you know, especially in the case of LeBron and D. Wade, particularly Kobe, they are big sports fans and they wanted yep. to go out and they wanted to support, you know, watch the Olympics and be part of the Olympic experience. That was also a uniquely awesome Olympics uh, yeah. just from, you know, Michael Phelps and Usain Bolt and – all the Lionel Messi, you know, the Williams sisters. I mean, incredible array of talent. Beach, uh, Beach volleyball. volleyball. Yeah. I mean, all uh, of it. Yeah. Yes. So it's no spoiler to say that the 2008 team was successful. And I want to give props to Dwayne Wade, who I don't think like gets enough credit for being the top scorer in that game, 27 points, right? Um, but how do you, as a documentarian, build suspense and excitement for a viewer who already knows the outcome of the game while you're actually showing the game in a documentary? Because I was on the edge of my seat, even though I knew it was going to happen. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> It helps to have really great editors, um, and we had three of them, Charlie Olivier, Jeremy Sue, and uh, Stephen Yao. It also was a quite compelling game, and one of the reasons that I wanted to do this project, it was a very, I knew it was a meaningful team. It also had sort of personal um, nostalgia for me. My older son was born in December of 2007. He was eight months old uh, during the Beijing Olympics, so eight-month-olds do not sleep, Right. The benefit of that was these games, the basketball games at those Olympics were happening in the middle of the night. So I was up and I was literally, I held my son, my older son, Joe, the entire second half of that Spain game, the gold medal game. And it was a crazily dramatic game. And and I remembered it being as such. And it was close. So we had the advantage of really great editors, a legitimately dramatic, in my opinion, one of the 10 greatest basketball games ever played any level anywhere. And it happened to be played at the like highest level at a gold medal game. And both teams, you know, the, the international game, you asked about the, the, the differences. The international game is also a shorter game. It's 40 minutes as opposed to 48 minutes. So the fact that both teams scored over 60 points in the first half is unheard of. I mean, they were just hitting shots and these were playing great defense and just – the, the level of play was really high. So it helps. when you, And you have these great moments, and it, the game got close. And, you know, they ended up winning the U.S., I think, by 11 points. But that really – that doesn't indicate how close the game was. I can tell you, having watched the game now a thousand times, it was really close. And, and yeah. it, it also had the feeling of one of these games – anytime there's a great upset – 
whether it's college basketball or tennis or soccer, the, the rhythm of the game is a certain kind of way, which is, you know, the favorite team can't quite pull away and the underdog just sort of keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and then boom, they win. And you had that feeling during the Spain game where it was like, they just can't knock them out. And, and yep. they got within two. And even when they, you know, you think you knock them out, they come back. And so it was a great game. I think it says a lot when LeBron James, a four-time NBA champion, says it's the greatest game of basketball ever played. I have a final question for you because, of course, we know the Redeem team did win the 2008 gold medal in the Olympics. But I don't think we ponder what would have happened if they would have lost. What was actually at stake here for the Redeem team? I think a couple things. I mean, I think for USA basketball, it was what was at stake is reasserting its sort of unique place in the basketball landscape, which is to say like, you know, basketball doesn't quite feel like basketball unless the Americans are pretty damn good. Right. It is our game in a certain kind of way. We have the deepest pool of talent. That's sort of the basketball of it all. But I think, you know, for the guys on the team, there were these arcs that needed to be completed. And I don't know, might Kobe Bryant have won championships if they had not won? Probably. Would LeBron James have won championships in the NBA? Probably. National team success isn't the be all and end all. It was certainly for Kobe for in a certain kind of way of changing his narrative and sort of jump-starting, kick-starting the second phase of his career after Shaq um, and after some of the you know, trials and tribulations he had been through. And for LeBron, it was the first significant championship he had ever won You know, since turning pro. People forget that. He had not won anything. For Dwayne Wade, it was a real comeback story. He was sort of counted out. You know, people didn't even think he was going to play on that team. He had been through a string of injuries. You know, I, I just think it was a capstone moment for all these guys that I don't know what would have happened. But I think for, for USA Basketball, it reset the standard or it set a standard for how an American basketball team is going to play international competition with professional players. It's not just going to be an all-star team. It's actually going to be a national team. Well, John Weinbach, uh, with the Redeem team, you can put another great sports documentary uh, in the books for yourself and for all of us. Thank you so much for making it. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. I loved it so much. And uh, thanks for coming on. You can't make this up. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to John Weinbach. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your audio. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 